risen Lord is an undeniable victory, and that's what we're going to be looking at uh, this morning, the implications of what it means to have a risen Savior, uh, the reality uh, behind the fact that he died on the cross, was buried, but yet rose uh, the third day. Uh, We all understand, I think, the concept of pivotal moments, occurrences after which everything else or nothing else is the same and could never be the same. Uh, For instance, take the American Revolution. Uh, Before that was fought and won, there was no United States of America. Uh, Yet today, our country not only exists, but stands as the premier world power, influencing economy and policy worldwide. All you have to do is travel around the world and you realize the weight of the United States. Or what about World War II? Imagine if the Axis powers had won. What would our world look like today? It would have destroyed all my German jokes. I know that um, (laughs) because that would have been dangerous. Uh, But thankfully, they didn't win, so I get to pick on Cody forever. Uh, And the political landscape for all humanity uh, was better preserved and protected. Those drastic historical events were undeniable victories and pivotal moments for all society. Uh, Yet this morning, we celebrate a moment of far greater significance and implication the undeniable victory of a risen Lord and Savior, the pivotal moment in the eternal landscape of humanity. As one writer notes, just as the heart pumps life-giving blood to every part of the body, so the truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of gospel truth. The resurrection is the pivot on which all of Christianity turns and without which none of the other truths would much matter. As Paul the Apostle would later note, in 1 Corinthians 15, 19 through 20, he says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead. The resurrection is a fact, an undeniable victory with irrefutable proof of which, and we'll look at this, believers testify. Uh, verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul begins writing here saying this, Moreover, brethren... And by that word, he means church or true believers. I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received and wherein ye stand, but which also ye are saved if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. And though Paul doesn't explicitly state it, an undeniable proof of a risen Savior is the church. True believers from all eras, specifically here speaking of the church in Corinth, the brethren, the reality of their conversion and of our conversion, the change from spiritual blindness, complete paganism, dead religion, to knowing the risen Lord as their personal Savior, proclaims and still proclaims today, it proclaimed back then and it still proclaims today, His power It preaches his gospel. It broadcasts the validity of a living, resurrected, life-changing Lord. There is no earthly explanation for a true Christian's belief and practice. What we do and who we are is foolishness to the world. They do not comprehend it. They cannot explain it. There is no pragmatic reason behind it except this. It is the transforming miracle work by a resurrected Savior. This is the truth that Paul preached, the truth they had believed, the truth upon which they stood. And as you read through Scripture and the history of the church, it is often the truth upon which they died. They and we are made part of his church and testify 
though to be honest, at times we do so weakly, of his true power and his true resurrection. Yet nestled perfectly in that bold proclamation of the church's testimony is a clear warning to those who are just religious, to people that are traditional Christians, to those who claim a title but are not identified in Christ, a warning to nominal Christians, those in name only who have a non-saving faith, a warning possibly to some sitting here this morning. He says, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. Stated differently, it's this, if you hold fast what I preached to you, unless your faith is worthless, which means it's not real, or unless you believe without effect. Here's a truth, you can never lose real salvation because true faith is not us holding tightly to him, but instead Christ holding us fast. However, there are many that have a useless faith. Christ taught clearly in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, many will say, Lord, Lord, but be excluded because of their empty fake faith. Not everyone that saith unto me, he says, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Paul begins speaking of the resurrection. Chapter 15 is his doctrinal treatise on the resurrection, tucked in the middle of a reprimand to a church that is, by any stretch of the imagination, one of the worst in the New Testament era. Uh, They are so connected to the world and connected to sin, he's constantly having to correct them. But in the middle, or towards actually towards the end of that first letter, he is giving him an idea of of the implication of the resurrection, the, the reality of the resurrection. And as he starts that, he puts a caution out to those in the church that maybe are not true believers, that have a supposed faith, that it's in name, it's in tradition. And I think it's done on purpose. The Holy Spirit inspired him to write that because through all the era of the church, there's always those sitting in worship, sitting in church who are traditional, who are connected maybe by family. And I put here, examine yourself to see if you are a true believer. That's the first testimony that comes out. We testify as believers of his resurrection. It's, it's, it's impossible to have a church without a risen Lord. But right away, Paul cautions and says, be diligent, be dissatisfied with nothing short of a deep dive into who you really are. Be sure you're part of the brethren. Have you truly believed the gospel message that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again? Have you believed the message of the saving work of Jesus Christ on behalf of guilty sinners? And then if you have believed, if you are truly saved, then recognize the impact of your testimony. Critics have denounced the resurrection as a hoax and fabrication, but have never explained the power of such a supposed fabrication to produce men and women who gave up everything, including their freedom and lives, when necessary, to love and follow a supposed dead Lord. A guy named H.D.A. Major writes this, Had the crucifixion of Jesus ended his disciples' experience of him? It is hard to see how the Christian church could have come into existence. That church was founded on faith in the Messiahship of Jesus. A crucified Messiah was no Messiah at all. He was one rejected by Judaism and accursed by God. 
It was the resurrection of Jesus, as St. Paul declares in Romans 1-4, which proclaimed him to be the Son of God with power. Jesus Christ had to die for our sins, but to accomplish our salvation, he had to rise again. He had to come in power. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an undeniable victory over sin and death. And I'm going to say this over and over again to the point that you're going to be sick of hearing it. It's a life-changing reality. The true church, his real disciples, testify by their unexplainably changed lives that truth and reality. Nothing is the same anymore because he lives. And if that truth has not altered how you understand life and eternity... The, the clarion call, the, the, the broadcast loudspeaker call is to be confronted with God's reality, true reality, and recognize that you stand outside of God's family, that you're not one of the brethren, that you are unredeemed. Paul starts proving the resurrection by looking at God's children, by looking at the church and saying, you, you point to a risen Lord but immediately says, examine yourself. Understand, are you in the faith? Are you one of the redeemed? We don't make that assumption because God's central theme running through his complete word is his clear redemptive plan. The gospel is the point of the Bible. That's why he wrote it. That's why he gave it to us. It was orchestrated before time began and central to the message of the gospel is a risen Savior, a truth which the Scriptures solidify. Believers testify to the reality of a risen Lord. The Scriptures solidify it. If you look at verses 3 through 4, it says this, For I delivered unto you, first of all, which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures." Here, as one writer remarks, is the most basic truths of the gospel succinctly stated. It is the gospel in a nutshell, if you will, yet clearly Paul wants you to see that it is the authority. Paul himself, he says, I received it, and he received it directly from the Lord. And then he says, I've delivered it. And the word in Greek for delivered is not casually talked about it. He hasn't just mentioned it. He hasn't just been in conversation about it. What he says when he says the word delivered from, from the word in Greek is that he says, I taught it with authority. In other words, he did not stand up and apologize, say, hey, I've got a new idea. I think I'd like you to consider. I'd like to debate with you about this. No, he said he stood up and he says, I delivered this word to you. I gave it to you with authority because that authority comes from God and it comes through his word. And so he references the scripture, and by the way, he's referencing mainly Old Testament scripture, and he's saying the Old Testament that you know, and if you go to Judaism that you've read and you say you believe, it points to this fact. According to the scriptures, the Messiah would come, he would die, he would be buried, and he would rise again, he would be our risen Savior. And so you look at what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus. This is another one of the the gospel stories that, that I love. I have I always loved the dialogue with the thief on the cross. I always love the dialogue with the centurion. And it's just like he's talking to himself as he comes to faith. And then the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they're trying to get their mind around the reality that Jesus was crucified. And they're walking out of the city going who knows where. 
you know, and for what purpose? They're walking away and they're talking about this other thing. They're saying he's, you know, they know he's been killed. And now there's this rumor, as they say it, people talking about the fact that he's risen from the grave. And so Jesus begins walking with them. He doesn't allow them to recognize him. And he explains from the scripture the reality of his death and resurrection. He says in Luke 24, 25 through 27, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Shouldn't he have died and then be risen and go to glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When unbelieving Jews during his ministry on earth came to him and said, hey, you better give us a sign to prove that you're the Messiah. He says in Matthew 12, 39 and 40, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign and there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You go to Paul, and he became the defender of the faith, the, the apologetic, the, the guy that was pushing forward into new frontiers. And towards the end of his life, he's been imprisoned. Again, the Jews, the Pharisees, the scribes, they've imprisoned him in Jerusalem. He's sitting in a jail cell, and corrupt politics kept him there. And so he is now making his case before King Agrippa. And of course, whenever Paul makes his case, the gospel is preached. And he states in Acts 26, verses 22 and 23, he says, I continue unto this day, speaking of his life, witnessing both to small and great. In other words, whoever comes my way, I'm going to tell him about the gospel. Saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. What's the point? Scripture has never stuttered about the reality of a suffering, dying Savior who would miraculously and victoriously arise from the dead. Scripture has always been clear. Scripture has never apologized for the fact that this truth alters everyone's life as it should. If you actually engage with the idea of a risen Lord, you're going to either come away believing it or you're going to reject it. You're going to to have to dump it aside because you cannot concede a risen Lord without some change, some drastic change taking place in your life. The Bible is a revered book today. I know it's not revered in every nation, but as a general principle, it's a revered book. It's still the, the most purchased book. It is sworn on in court by most people, but sadly, most people do not recognize its authority. This is God's word to us. It contains his purpose and will and has solidified his work and plan. This book is clear about our condition. We are depraved, we are sinful, and we are condemned. Yet this book is filled with God's hope and his way, salvation found in Christ alone gained through his death, burial, and subsequent resurrection from the grave. Scripture is clear about Jesus's undeniable victory and unapologetic about how that victory changes everything about your life. It changes everything about eternity. Yet it is the truth that the world finds so difficult to believe. The world is happy with a guy that dies for them. They're happy with somebody who loves them 
but doesn't demand anything from them. But when you have a risen Lord, you have this idea of authority, and it is an ultimate sovereign authority. You cannot escape it anymore. When Paul preached in Athens, and he's been booted out of city after city, and so he goes alone to Athens because he's, he's in trouble in every other city he's in, but he can't keep his mouth shut, and so he starts talking, and, and he doesn't sound crazy to anybody, so they bring him to Mars Hill. They bring him to the intellectual elites, and when he preaches there and he gets to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, it immediately prompts the mocking from intellectuals. They start laughing. And then some other ones in their discomfort, oh, we'll talk to you later. Now, up to this point, they've been happy to listen to him because he's brilliant. From their standpoint up to this point, there's nothing he said that's throwing them off because they worship a plethora of gods. They have a whole philosophy that allows them to skirt any, any kind of accountability. But see, when he brings up the fact that the unknown God, as he links to it, died and then rose from the grave, suddenly they are confronted. And I would say this, they show a little bit more intelligence than our culture does because they recognize something in that moment. Because when you have a God that dies and then a God that rises from the grave, you have no other choice but to obey him or deny him. Why? Because the resurrection demands a reaction you cannot remain neutral. So I put here again, have you believed the Bible? Have you listened to its life-altering resurrection message? And if you do, do you live that out clearly in the everyday function of this life? Because we claim the name of Christ, and, and I, I hope that many of us truly have believed, but then the question is, do we live in a way that we should? Do we live in a way that testifies as it should of Jesus Christ, how he died for our sins, was buried, and that he rose again. See, there's a truth and a change that the eyewitnesses verify. Look at verses 5 through 10, and, and let the weight of this sink in. Uh, we live in a day and age where if you have one or two people as an eyewitness, uh, you'll, the whole court system unfolds. You have someone say anything and, and, and everything is turned out because an eyewitness account bears weight. And so I just want you to get an implication or, or a weight of how many people have seen the risen Lord. When Paul is writing to Corinth, how many are still alive? And he says the majority. So it says this, and that he was seen. We're getting into this physical idea of verification. And that he was seen of Cephas, speaking of Peter, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. And don't miss what Paul's saying there. There's over 500 people that saw him at one time, and most of them are alive. So if you want to verify with actual people that saw him at one time, then you can go ahead. It's not one person dreaming. It's not one person that's been duped. It's 500 plus people that have seen him at one time. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, which just shows you he's, he's, he appeared to the apostles multiple occasions. And last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time, as an untimely birth. And the word in Greek is actually as, as a, a miscarriage birth. So he's demeaning himself in this. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labor more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. And Paul, and I want you to realize why the treatise on the resurrection to the church in Corinth. Why is this not tucked? Why is this chapter not tucked into Romans? Why is this not laid out there? It makes more sense, but you have to realize that the church in Corinth is enamored with their world and that world's perspective. They are caught up in Greek philosophy, and Greek philosophy had such a room for different religions because what they did is they emphasized the spiritual and they devalued the physical. And what that meant about the physical side, by devaluing the physical, they didn't care about a bodily resurrection because they thought the body was nothing, it was just flesh. And so what they did is it gave them the ability mentally to disengage from sin committed in the flesh. So what it boiled down to is no matter what Greek religion you landed on, the idea was keep your spiritual body good. That's what's important. And who cares what you do with your physical body? So do whatever you want. Engage in whatever sin. So immorality was, was, was everywhere, rampant. Any type of, of excess was permitted, and they would still maintain this idea of being religious people. Now, that's to be expected from the world. The world worships itself. They've made themselves into God, and so they don't want anyone telling them what to do. That's the whole fall in, in the garden. You know, he, God can't tell you what to do. Don't you want you to be like God, know everything, do whatever you want? That's the, that's the lie of Satan. But what happens is the church is there, and they are buying into this idea. So now you have the church that's to be redeemed, and there they are living like the world. And, and oh, well, there's no bodily resurrection. It's all a spiritual life. And, and what they've done is floated away from truth. They've moved into a horrific lie. You see, the resurrection confronts that casual sin condoning worldview. And so now you understand why Paul is so adamant with this church about the resurrection, because he points now to the fact that there is a physically resurrected Lord. There's an eyewitness account of him. And he says, and, and a lot of them are still alive. And he begins by saying, hey, Peter saw him. Now, Peter is the undisputed leader of the apostles. So he goes right away saying, Peter saw Christ. Now, don't forget something else. Peter's also the one that denied Christ at his trial. He says, but I want you to realize that the head of the apostles, the, the known spokesperson, he saw Christ. And then he says, the apostles saw him. He says, he appeared to the 11 disciples. Uh, scripture uses of the 12, even before Judas is replaced, the one that betrayed Christ, they still refer to him as the 12. And then again in verse 7, he says, he's seen by the apostles again. And so, Paul says to the church in Corinth, great, you want to deny a physical resurrection? You want to try to remove the, the, the accountability for your life and the sins that you're committing? You see how practical the resurrection gets? How immediately, why Paul writes to the church in Corinth? Because they are just wicked, vile people who are saying it's fine to sin and do whatever I want. They engage in sin that the world thought was horrific and condoned it. And see, this this idea that the theology behind the resurrection drives the practical living of life. And so he's confronting them. He's saying, look, the head, the head apostle saw him, even though he denied him. And then all the other ones saw him. 
And then he goes on from there and he says, the believers saw him. A multitude of believers, 500 plus disciples saw Jesus at the same time. And I hope you see something that Paul is doing. Head of the apostles, the apostles, 500 believers. And what he's doing is building a growing physical evidence of a physically risen Savior. More eyewitnesses than any court of law could ever demand. Irrefutable proof. But Paul doesn't stop there. Because right away you say, well, they're followers of Jesus. So, of course, they're going to say they saw a risen Jesus. He switches to talking about his appearance to a guy named James, which there are apostles named James, but this, this James they're talking to is referring to Jesus' brother, who up to this point did not believe in him. John 7, 5 says, for neither did his brethren believe in him. And so as Paul is building for the leader of the apostles to all the apostles to 500 disciples plus brethren that see him at the same time, now he actually turns with that overwhelming evidence. He says, Jesus shows himself to an unbeliever. See, we see James and we recognize him for who he became. We miss the idea of who he was. He was the half-brother of Jesus, the opportunity to watch the Lord Jesus Christ grow from boyhood up to adulthood to see everything he did, understand the miracles that he did, have unlimited access to the Savior. And what did he do? He rejected him all the way through his death. And so Christ appears to James, the unbeliever, but he doesn't remain an unbeliever. He becomes a leader of the church in Jerusalem and was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the book of the Bible that bears his name. In case you're wondering, that's the book of James. It's my favorite book in the Bible. It is the most practical book. I call it the survival guide to Christianity. You're going to walk through that. You're going to have logical things that you have to do, that you're supposed to do to live the Christian life in the most practical way on earth. And who better than the unbeliever who sees the resurrected Lord and becomes a follower of Christ and becomes the leader of the church. And so the eyewitness account includes a former unbeliever and a family member. But that's not all. There's a special witness, one shown the risen Lord at a later time on the road to Damascus. He's not one of the original apostles, but instead was the hater. Here was the persecutor and attacker of the church. If you read in Acts, he literally goes in and rips Christians out of their home and takes them to trial to be condemned. This is a guy that is, is you can't imagine a more wicked person in this sense. When it comes to persecuting the church, and his name was Saul at this time, becomes Paul, he is the number one persecutor. Here is the one attempting to destroy the church's growth, dedicated to eradicating any hint of belief, attempting to destroy anyone who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is on the road to Damascus, not because he's on some vacation or spiritual journey, but because he is the tip of the spear. He wants to be the point of contact to arrest, destroy, kill, whatever it takes to eradicate the church. And it's to this guy that Jesus, post-resurrection now and post-ascension, he's already gone up to heaven, that Jesus appears to Paul and changed him forever. The one who hated Christ now becomes the strongest servant of Christ. Christ even tells him that. You have no idea, he says, how much you're going to suffer for me. Of course, the hater becomes the believer. And the grace that saved him from his sin also enabled him to serve with complete faithfulness. 
The fact is this. Jesus Christ had risen bodily from the grave. Not in an image, not just in spirit. He rose from the grave. And there will be a bodily resurrection. And that bodily resurrection has implication on how we live today. It guides and directs our actions in the every street level component of life. He'd conquered sin and death. He was seen by an abundance of witnesses, all witnesses who were changed forever. Deniers became bold proclaimers. Unbelievers became leaders. Haters and destroyers became builders of the church, reaching to the uttermost to share the message of truth. The eyewitness evidence of a risen Messiah is irrefutable and overwhelming, seen by those who loved and followed him, those who disdained him and one who outright hated him. What's the effect of seeing a risen Messiah? Well, as they're accused of by the world in Acts 17, 6, they are these that have turned the world upside down. Why? Because a risen Savior changes everything. We tend to box it into Easter. We get to gather together. We have a meal. We have time with family, and all those things are wonderful. We engage in fun activities But the reality of the resurrection is it is a practical, street-level, life-altering component of your faith. It is central. I hope the same can be said of his true church today, that we will have turned the world upside down with the message of his gospel, with the truth of his resurrection. And so Paul states in verse 11, Therefore, whether it were I or they, in other words, it doesn't matter who, So we preach, and so ye believed. The message of life, without exception, and no matter who it is that proclaims it, is centered on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what any true proclaimer of Scripture and salvation preaches, and any true believer believes that, without exception. John MacArthur writes this, Wherever Christ was preached and by whomever whomever he was preached, his resurrection was the pivotal message that was proclaimed. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, rising from the grave after sacrificing himself for our sin, is the undeniable victory. And it's a victory that changes the everything of life. And so as we close this Easter morning, let me remind you of the reality of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, I read it already once, 19 through 20 says this, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Let me put it in context of our world, because our world, in an attempt, now they're not always this way, but in an attempt to appease us, they will say nice things about Jesus. He was a good man. He was a, he was a, He was a just man. They might even give him some semblance of divinity. Even in the religion of Islam, they give reverence to Jesus. He's beneath Muhammad, but he's still given some sense of reverence. He's a prophet. You can wander through a lot of different religions, and you'll find Christ cropping up. A just man, a good man, partial divinity, son but not equal with God. There's a thousand things. But if he's any of those things and he was dead and he was buried, then our gathering today, our worship of him is painfully pitiful. We are wasting our time if he didn't rise from the grave. But he didn't stay in the grave. 
And therefore, what we believe and in whom we believe is of preeminent importance and the priority of this life. It is needed by all. And so as you're sitting here and as you think about this, and this is one of the thoughts I hope we'll all walk away from, is if it's not at street level of your life, then you know you've distanced yourself from the truth of his resurrection. If it doesn't walk with you, if it doesn't alter how you respond and and live. And if that's the case, it's almost like you become a denier of the resurrection. So what is our response to the resurrection? Well, 1 Corinthians 15.34 states this, and it's possible that some here as well have not the knowledge of God. And that was, that was Paul's reprimand to the church in Corinth. He says, look, he tells the true believers, wake up, wake up, because you have people in your midst that don't know Jesus Christ. You have people there, but because you're so casual about the resurrection and because you're so enamored with Greek philosophy, because it allows you to do whatever you want with your life, he says, you're, you're clouding truth, is what he's basically saying. There's some here that don't know God. They don't have a real knowledge of God. And he says, I say that to your shame. And then you have to look in your life and you have to say, do you have people around you that have no knowledge of God? And do they even see the need for a knowledge of God from how you live your life? Which is the second point I'm trying to make. I'm trying to make the point now to people that don't believe. When we live in denial of the resurrection, our life reflects that denial. We live as if there is no tomorrow, no coming judgment. We live for today. I hope that as you consider the reality of the resurrection, your response will be belief. If, if you do not have a real knowledge of God, I hope that the, the response today is, is putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I hope that you can see that the wages of your sin is eternal death that you are accountable to a holy, righteous God, that he has his wrath poured out in you, yet the gift of God, which is Jesus dying and rising victorious, is eternal life for everyone that believes. And now for those of us that believe, I've already gotten half that application done, but for those of us that know the truth of our Savior's resurrection, then I pray we act accordingly. Paul is... Uh, again, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it's just so gifted because the, the whole chapter on the resurrection, which is not a short one, it's 58 verses. I originally thought I should preach all 58 verses, but Heather says, don't be a fool. You can't do that. Um, <laughs> and so I, I went to 11, but I couldn't walk away from verse 58 because this is a, a one segment piece on the resurrection. What is the implication for you as a believer? What do you do with this reality? How are you supposed to act because of it? And I don't need to even explain the words. I'm just going to read them. Therefore, my beloved brethren, because of all the resurrection, that's what the therefore points back to, 57 verses. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain. Be steadfast, be unmovable, and here's an active one, be abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because we work for a risen Savior, and everyone needs to know that risen Savior. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to dive in, to, to take time to understand the implication of your resurrection. I hope we can all walk away with the weight of an undeniable victory. I know that the majority of people here believe in you risen from the grave. 
But I don't know how many of us have allowed the weight of that to alter how we walk this life. Have we allowed it to change our interactions? Have we allowed it to change how we respond, what we engage in, what we do, what we focus on? You have risen from the grave. You have been victorious over sin and death. And as your children, we should live victorious over sin and death. We should not be seeking this world and trying to have what it gives, but instead we should be a light to this world, testifying to the change that is brought by our risen Lord and Savior. In your precious and holy name, amen.